This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 107 for Thursday, 17th of October 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear, and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen, and hopefully, what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is returning guest host, Cam Smith. Welcome back, Cam. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Uh, I'm beset by political correctness, and I think we can all agree that it's gone too far. Can't we, Cam? Can we? And when we, we say political correctness, it means whatever the thing is that pisses you off the most. Hmm. It doesn't have to have any coherent meaning. It doesn't have to have anything consistent. It doesn't have to be something that um, actually stands up to any analysis. In fact, it's even better if you never define it, if you leave it vague. Don't you remember? I do. I, uh, so, Ita Buttrose... The uh, managing director of the ABC. Uh, ...came out against PC this week. And she was asking questions, wasn't she? And, and she, she had, a, had some sort of slightly disturbing views. Well, apparently we can't have conversations like we used to have in the, in the, the workplace... Especially conversations between men and women. Yeah, no, we know harassment is, is generally frowned on now. But what about the old days when harassment was fine and didn't hurt anybody except for the people who it did hurt? And we could just look. Okay, Ida, you tell us. You tell us. One of the questions asked of Australians in uh, the Australia Talk survey is, uh, do you reckon political correctness has gone too far in Australia? What's your view on that? I agree 100%. You know, I agree 100% that we, we don't talk to each other the way we used to. Even in the workplace, the way men and women used to talk to one another, which was quite fun, I think, doesn't exist today. When I think of some of the conversations I used to have with Sir Frank Packer, for instance, it simply wouldn't happen today. And, and, I, and I think it takes a lot of spontaneity out of the workplace. I, you know, I, I think Australians are essentially good-humoured people and and we like to josh each other in the workplace and we should be able to do that without uh, without anyone being offended or sensitive about it. Your we're, pe- far, we're far too sensitive, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, and just on that, uh, you appeared as one of the many guests in that fabulous documentary on Mojo, the advertising yeah. guys from the 1980s, and one comment of yours struck me in that documentary. You said it used to be OK to be a larrikin in Australia. Do, do, do you reckon we're too afraid to be larrikins anymore? There are very few larrikins anymore. You know, I mean, Hoax was a larrikin. He was wonderful and he was a great talent. And he still is a great talent. But, but yeah, we, we, we've sort of suppressed that side of that character. And I think we need to bring back the larrikin element of Australia and be very proud of it because it's very unique to us. Our larrikins are pretty special. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I always... I, I, I mean, we get the same thing when we're proud about mateship being an Australian quality, because people from other countries don't have friends. It's, it's a uniquely Ast- white Australian Anglo-Saxon thing to have friends, mates. And likewise, larrikins, people being cheeky of authority. That's, you know, uniquely Australian. It's, it's simply not a human characteristic that anybody else in the world has. Well, I think it's definitely an Australian characteristic to uh, massively overstate how much you thumb your nose at authority. <laughs> Oh, I think say people who are like, where's the larrikin spirit? Why can't we be larrikins? Also, some hippies glued themselves to the road. Throw the book at them! Throw the book at them! Authority forever! Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, I work in an office. I work in the in a, the modern workplace, and uh, 
I think that what she's talking about is that uh, you can't just be openly racist anymore. Sexism's still pretty much the go. Uh... But this is the thing. You're we we it's like shadow boxing. Whenever you we deal with conservatives having a whinge about political correctness, they never define it. And it's the same with the um, religious lobby and their their pitch for more powers, the freedom to say what they need to be able to say. And again, they never define what it is. They never specify. Ida Butros in that quote there talks about not being able to say the same sort of things that in the old workplace that she was able, you know, Frank Packer was able to say. But she doesn't say what those things are. And we know why, because political correctness is this magic term that can never be defined without, without completely exposing the person who's using it. It is a nonsense term for... It's just designed to pull everybody together who has been in any way told that they should probably um, rein in some of the objectionable things that they're saying, that they don't, um, they, they don't have the empathy to consider how those things could be harmful to the people that are affected, and therefore they're resentful about having been told that they can't say the stuff that they, uh, that, that they enjoyed saying. Um, and and where, where they might not even agree with each other's version. So the people who want to be able to say... Um, sexist stuff might not agree with some of the homophobic stuff, or the people who want to say racist stuff might not agree with some of the religious stuff. Like, all of these people who whinge about political correctness, they don't necessarily agree with each other on the specific things they want to be able to say. In fact, some of them might be particularly harmed by it. In fact, you often have the situation where people from a racial minority who's, who's persecuted would like to be able to make jokes about women, or white women might be wanting to make jokes about a marginalised racial group. Part of the the magic of the term political correctness and whinging about it having gone too far is that if you don't define what it is you want to say, A, it's harder for the people who would actually call you on it to come back at you and to point out why, you know, basically by giving the example you show why you shouldn't be able to say those things without consequence, but also if you don't ever define it, you manage to get this sort of alliance of people who just feel aggrieved that they don't, can't just pick on anyone they like where if it was specified they, they might well find that they don't actually agree with each other's particular views in fact that's even more of it seeing what the thing is that the other person wants to say that would might, would attack you might make you realize oh hang on yeah if, t- if i can do that to the other people then other people can do it back to me yeah wait a minute uh unless i am a incredibly privileged rich white man heterosexual heterosexual you know cisgendered white man at the top of everything who doesn't fit into any of the marginalized categories then as soon as it's a you know open slather to to pick on people for the ways in which they're marginalised, shit, this could come back and bite me too. Hmm. Isn't it funny how capital divides <laughs> us? It, it really is the political correctness thing. Whenever these people are calling for their right to say things, and and I've noticed now that they specifically some people actually ask them on it. And we'll get to Martin Niles at the end of the podcast. And I at the National Press Club the other day when he was having the debate with Fiona Patton. I think somebody did ask him precisely what it is that he wanted to be able to say, and of course he ducked the question. But at least people are starting to notice that whenever there are these calls for their free speech to say things, and you say, well, what is it that you want to be able to say that you can't say now? They won't tell you. They will fudge it, they'll duck it, they will do anything, but you will notice at the end of whatever their answer was that they didn't tell you a thing that they felt that they should be able to say, but they can't. Yeah. Which, in in reverse, like, if you call on LGBTI people in on in that argument, say, what is it that you think you should be able to do um, without consequence, and they will be quite clear about it. I think I should be able to be LGBTI without being, without 
being at risk of losing my job. Being yeah, discriminated it's a very straightforward yeah. response there. There's nothing fudgy about it. It's like, I would like equality again before the law and not to be discriminated against because of my lawful sexual activity. Yeah. Anyway, that's the head of the ABC. And apparently they put that question in there. Australia took like some kind of publicly funded survey thing, whether you think political correctness has gone too far. And like the Brexit referendum, what is the what is the point of putting a question out there that is completely without meaning? It doesn't have... It's mm. not specific. It's, it's not... It, when you come out with an answer, people are going, yes, it's gone too far. What does that mean? Is it, there are a bunch of racists out there, a bunch of sexists out there, a bunch of... Like, what 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 are people actually answering? And what does what has gone too far? They, when people... If you put to them a specific thing that, that they can't... You know, that, that you, you can't say in the workplace now because... You know, if you if you sexually harass a woman in the workplace, now there are protections. Mm. Like, does Ida Bytros genuinely think that that was fine? Does she think that she didn't mind it, so therefore nobody should? Older women being like, oh no, that stuff, I survived it, so other women should have to put up with it too, is one of the most objectionable forms of sort of lack of solidarity in patrol. And of course, we have two blokes having this discussion, so, you know... We're not, we're not exactly part of that solidarity, but even so, like you can see it from the outside. It's pretty objectionable. Yeah, I, I, I have to imagine that Ida might be looking back at her bounce with Frank Packer through her rose-coloured glasses as well. Yeah, well, she didn't didn't lose her job and they got on fine. So I guess, you know, whatever, whatever the issues were in her personal experience, they weren't of a sexist, obje- objectionable boss, you know, making a, unwanted advances and not being they're not being reciprocated and then her career being punished for it like by the by the very virtue of the fact that her career has been a successful one and she's at the top of the abc clearly you know she wasn't <laughs> victimized to the point of of destroying her career hmm. so maybe she thinks everything's you know, it's a it's a classic thing isn't it people up the top of the ladder being like there's nothing wrong with the ladder the ladder's fine i got to the top of it yeah i, I mean i may have stepped on some other people to get there but you know if they 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 should have just stepped harder anyway at its core what they object to by calling it political correctness is nothing more than treating people with basic respect and not stepping on people to boost your own social power and capital and having empathy for people who are in more marginalised situations than you are. So it's disturbing to learn that the head of the ABC uh, still, like 2019, maintains the view that the old days were better in those respects, but you know, she's just the head of the ABC. What's even more disturbing this week is to find that uh, one of the crossbench, Senator Lambie, is looking at voting to get rid of even the minimal protections that we have managed for the most vulnerable people that the country uh, has in, their, in, in its control, being the refugees. And Lambie's remarks about Medivac this week. Uh, did you see these, Cam? Yes, so uh, we need to weigh the national security implications of keeping the Medivac scheme. Yeah, Lambie's remarks were following up the mayhem and murder and, and destruction in Syria. Yes. I would have thought that was an argument for why we should be kinder to refugees and have more pet refugees coming and stop persecuting them because they're clearly they're fleeing an actual war zone. But according to Jackie Lambie, no, that's not the conclusion that she reaches from the situation. Well, as the bombs rain down in Damascus, uh, people are going to be looking at uh, the news in Australia and seeing the Medivac scheme, and they're going to think to themselves, well. If I go to Australia, get locked in a concentration camp, get incredibly sick, I might one day get to Christmas Island. <laughs> it's just... Well, so let's go back a couple of steps. First of all, okay, this is her actual quote. So she wanted to, to look into security implications. 
quote, especially with the tempo that's happening in the Middle East in the last four or five days. She said she, she was concerned that the medevac scheme may send a signal to people smugglers, you know, villains like Oscar Schindler, that kind of person, and set off, quote, a domino effect of boat arrivals. Quote, word doesn't always get back to people in war zones not to get on boats because you won't be allowed in Australia, she said. And this is, keep in mind, the whole justification for this is, well, you know, boats, boats can be dangerous. You know what else can be dangerous, Cam? War zones! War zones are dangerous! Frankly, the idea that we should be trying to bully people to stay into war zones rather than seeking refuge, but even if they take the punt of getting on a boat, they're still much less likely to die on a boat than in the freaking war zone. This is, I mean, this is the conservative thing where the reason that we are so unbelievably cruel to these people is because we are removing supposed pull factors, the attractiveness of Australia. But in fact, every refugee is being pushed by push factors, namely that where they are is no longer safe to be. And they're not idiots. They know that the boats are dangerous. They're getting on the boats because they're the last option they have and the alternative is even worse. Like, so simply shutting down the boats doesn't, improve the situation, it means that, they've, that, they're, that the thing that was so bad that they were willing to get on boats to flee it, they're stuck there. Mm. This, is not a, this is not a humanitarian outcome. And certainly it doesn't help that, you know, the boats that do manage to make it here, the ones that don't just sink, uh, the, the Navy burns. Yes. Oh, that's right. Because, well, I mean, I'm sure I've ranted about this before. We've got the, the fundamental idea is, like, if boats are unsafe, which they probably are, then you need to punish the people who run the boats on the grounds of running them unsafely. You need to make the running of an unsafe boat the crime. But what instead we do is we punish them when the boats get here safely, and basically we make sure that they send disposable boats um, because we're going to smash them up and burn them. So you don't you send a disposable crew and a disposable boat because the Australian government doesn't view the, um, the dangerousness of the boat as the problem. They view people arriving and seeking refuge as the problem. Anyway, so yeah, imagine imagine the idea that that having another example of a place where people really need to flee, that's a reason that we should start being cruel to refugees to try and bully them not to flee it. Mm. And that's that's what the Medivac vote hinges on. And by the way, just for the clarity, I'm sure that everybody listening to this is well aware of it, but the Medivac legislation does not in any way stop Peter Dutton refusing to bring somebody to Australia on security grounds. Peter Dutton retains the power to do that. The, the Medivac legislation simply means that if there is a medical ground it's assessed by doctors rather than Peter Dutton who is not a doctor and not really uh, making medical assessments in the interests of the refugees but what it does do I don't know if my voice is going up and down because I'm bouncing a baby on my knee is, is it, can hmm. you hear it? Is it like I'm talking to a fan or something? I mean maybe in summer that's what I should do like record the podcast like speaking into a, ro- a rotary fan but no right I don't know if you can hear the, the up and no, down it's, it's I, fine I'm not on, a, not on a bumpy road I just have a, have a bumpy baby on my knee anyway yeah, so no, every time the government talks about how this is putting Australians at risk of dangerous people coming here, that's an absolute lie, because if there were anybody dangerous, and the government had any reason for believing that they were dangerous, the minister has complete discretion to refuse it, even under the Medivac legislation. The only change is that they can't pretend that it's, fam- that, that it's not a necessary thing on medical grounds when it's not. Like, they, mm. the medical aspect is assessed by doctors. But he can still have right. Like, if somebody is a genuine threat to Australia and they have a, a genuine medical need and the doctors say, no, they should be here, but Peter Dutton is like, no, they're an actual threat, he can still refuse them under the legislation. He did not change that. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, just the, the thing, the idea of there being threats is sort of, it's based on a very shaky logic that 
ISIS or Al-Qaeda or someone is going to secretly send people through... This is how they're going to get people into Australia through oh, the refugee system when you would just get on a plane. Yes. No, it's beyond stupid. And, I mean, you see that, and Labor's not helping at all because Labor's whole thing is, yes, the, the real way that the gov- government is failing uh, is by letting other refugees arrive by plane. They're not being tough enough to refugees. Like, fuck you, Labor. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Cam, you've been around for a long time. You remember that um, this whole... It's not like they were happy with refugees arriving here in 2001 when Tampa happened. No. It's not like the the excuse of stopping people drowning was even raised as a rationale by the by the Conservatives up until the Labor government got in in you know, 2000 and then we had 2008, 2009. Um, and again, the reason why those boats were... I mean, we could easily save people by letting them get on planes, give, give them a visa to come by plane, mm. which we refuse. So, like, if we were concerned about them being safe, then... There's a very straightforward way of doing it. But fundamentally, that's not the... It's like this chunky excuse they give for their lack of humanity and try to fudge that it is... That, that actually it's them who are the humane ones. They care about saving lives. We hippies who just want, want refugees to arrive here safely. We don't care about it. But then you see, you see the lie in it every time that refugees do arrive here safely and they crack the absolute shiz. Because yeah. their real issue is not... Refugees drowning at sea. Their real re- issue is refugees getting here mm. and pandering to the people f- for whom that's the problem. Anyway, it's depressing. I think it boils down fundamentally to okay. There's two things. There's one, the fear of people who are different, and the innate xenophobia of human beings generally, but Australians in particular at the moment. But also the conservative hatred of of their money being taken in form of taxes and given to vulnerable people who on the calculus that their life is based on uh, must deserve it because i have i have money i have stuff and they don't and the only way that, that would be fair is if i am more meritorious than they are therefore they're bad people therefore i resent giving them a damn cent and uh, so much of the refugee hatred is based on this deranged fear that they're going to be sitting there on our extremely luxurious social safety net which they're not um and we keep making it harder and harder for them but it's also it turns out this week Pretty monstrous. And in terms of this being a pull factor, not really. Um, ANU analysis came out this week showing that Newstart is the second lowest payment in the OECD um, in, by way of Social Security. But in terms of, um, if you include rent assistance, it's in fact the lowest. So far from our incredibly generous Newstart being a massive pull factor to anyone, it's miserably inadequate uh, and falls further and further behind because most countries tie it to wage increases and average wages, whereas Australia ties it to the much lower... The bouncing stopped. Need more bouncers. So, other countries link it to pay rises. Yeah, other countries link it to pay rises and Australia links it to the CPI, which is bizarrely... I don't... Cam, I don't suppose I've gotten possibly something we should look up. I don't really get why the CPI is so pathetically low. Like, the idea that it's... It sounds like it should be reasonably keeping track with inflation like the cost of living and stuff but the cpi analysis or calculation must be the algorithm must be something that's Mm. very broad across the economy and not really linked to what consumers actually it's called the consumer price index but it doesn't the amount it goes up is pathetically tiny it doesn't take into account even rents have gone up vastly more than anything any like they said like when when they do their cpi adjustments it's like a dollar or two dollars a fortnight and rents go up like 
$10 a week each year, let alone electricity and let alone, you know, groceries. Like, there is no way that that is a, an accurate reflection of what the actual cost of living is. Look, maybe I shouldn't be being so vague about about this, and if we're going to speculate on why the CPI is so low, maybe I should have gone and done some research on it. Maybe I will do that. But fundamentally, it clearly is not a, a measure that accurately demonstrates uh, or reflects what is really the, the actual price increases that affect people. So in real terms, the payment keeps falling further and further below what you need to survive. Well, sorry, maybe cut this, but has the payment actually increased? I thought it hadn't moved. No, no, it goes up by like a buck or two. It goes up, like they're, they're pathetically yeah. small increases, mm. but it's tied to CPI, so it's very low. Can't be saying that then. And you can tell uh, how shonky the calculation is because the uh, there are many, many more old age pensioners. They're a much more organised voting block that the Conservatives aren't quite so happy to piss off. So the old age pension is tied to wage increases, not CPI. And the idea that it's fine for one payment to be tied to CPI and one to be tied to wages is insane. How do you justify... Does that make any sense at all? How is whatever the payment was, whatever the disparity is between Newstart and the old age pension, how do you justify one increasing at a dramatically faster rate than the other one? Like, cost of living things apply to both. Why? Why is, apart from the fact that one is a politically potent voting block and one isn't, because again, no matter how many times they try and tell you that welfare is out of welfare spending is out of control and it's destroying the budget, mm. it's not people on Newstart. It's the old, the vast bulk of that is the old age pension. New side is like seven percent of it, or something pathetically tiny, and that's it's almost like the cost for the old age pension is used to justify continually punching the unemployed. Yeah, who I think if uh, the Labor Party were to actually direct some resources in that direction, could be a potent voting block, but they've just. They've historically been ignored. I, I also think you, can, you can't sincerely make that argument. That's why the only people making that argument are doing it uh, very cynically. I don't think that Labor's calculus is that there just simply aren't enough unemployed people uh, compared with old age pensioners. There are more older, there are many more old age pensioners than there are unemployed people who get Newstart. Even after the government shoves a whole lot of people off the disability support pension onto Newstart, the numbers are still very, very low. Um, the payment is so. In terms of a voting block, it's not one that Labor really feels that there's any value in going after, which is pathetic. That's not how. I guess in terms of what we can do, one thing we we as lefties should be doing is advocating very carefully. And unfortunately, the ALP doesn't do this, but pointing out to people while the social safety net, mm. a you never know what's going to happen to you. Like I know people want to th- want to assume the best into the future, but you, you the safety net is there. You, you might want to assume the best into the future, but you still get house insurance. You still have car insurance. You still keep in mind that there is a possibility that something will go horribly wrong. Well, Social Security is the same thing. It's, it's insurance in case things go to complete crap for you. Um, and more than that, though, the bigger pitch that I don't think that we're, the left is managing to communicate is that it helps workers. The higher new studies, the more um, you can actually, as long as you can actually live on it, then you have the ability to turn to your boss when you're being exploited and say, no, I'm not, no, I'll, I'll be paid an actual, a decent wage or decent conditions for my labour or I will go out and find something else and I will be able to survive in the meantime. Mm. While you can't do that, while there's massive holes in the safety net, 
then it weakens your wages. It weakens the pressure on wages for you that you can get your wages to increase because employers know you you don't have a choice. You've got to cop what they're going to give you or nothing. You can't if you can't live on Newstart. Then if the safety net's not there, then you don't have anything to fall back on, and they know it. Yeah, and as we are, we heard in I guess the clip we're about to play. Uh, not only can you not live on on Newstart, you can't go out and get a job when you're when you're on Newstart because you can't afford to do the things that you need to do to get a job. That's true, and and weirdly enough, the business lobby who actually benefit from workers not having the safety net are also recognising that it's costing them in the sense that people can't spend money. The economy doesn't work if people are desperately hoarding what they have or, or unable to just barely survive. Um, a lot of the economy doesn't work if people are, if all that money is tied up, which is why the Reserve Bank keeps dropping interest rates to try and stimulate spending, and all it does is pushes up house prices, mm. which makes it the problem worse. Like, Anyway, this is Patricia Cavellis on the ABC questioning Government Minister Andrew Laming about the idea of a new start rise and his explanation for why the business lobby might be advocating for something like an increase in new start, it's kind of hard to believe, Cam. Mm. Don't you think that the current rate of new start makes it difficult for job seekers to actually even front up to job interviews? I mean, that's what business is even telling us. Definitely not. It isn't preventing them turning up for a job so interview, So what business Patricia. is making it up? Uh, that's incorrect. That's right. It's not right. And they Why can is business saying it then? Uh, because they can say anything they want in a free country, Patricia, but it's rubbish. But what's the motivation for business, the BCA and other groups, to say there should be a rise in new start and to identify their own work where, people, where they don't think people can front up and be job ready because they're on such a small amount of money? Why would they sort of fabricate that? Cheap headline. Who knows? You have to ask them, to be honest. These payments can well, be easily enhanced. Not, they're saying they're not fabricating it. I have asked them questions about this. Right. So on right. what basis do you say that they're just making it up? Well, I'll put it this way, Patricia. I meet more people without a job than the entire board of the BCA does every week of the year and I talk to them and those individuals can get to a job interview with the payments they receive and they can have a $200 bonus if they're in the appropriate age group and they want to go on path. So what am I saying to those that make those comments? Complete rubbish and cheap headline. So there you are, Cam. It makes sense that the business lobby would be advocating for greater public spending on social security for a cheap headline. Yeah. I mean, they make lots of money out of the cheap headline. Like, it just makes perfect sense. Well, they're just looking for publicity. They're trying to get the BCA brand out there. And they thought this is the way to do it. It's the most delusional, deranged thing I have ever heard. What? Ah. Look, it is fundamentally the case that this is a thing that the coalition will never move on. Because the, the, the biggest thing that ties them together as conservatives, from the Nats to the Libs, from the Libwets to the Lib Dries, the biggest thing that ties them together is hating paying tax, and most of all, hating taxes going to the people who they consider undeserving. So, and, and fundamentally, first and foremost in that is what the people they would call doll bludgers. And mm. there is no way that they will vote for... They wouldn't... Even if, even if the business lobby managed to talk to the minister and be like, look, seriously, this is actually causing us economic harm at this point, they couldn't even sell it to their supporters at this point because so much of their support is based on resentment of the poor and vulnerable. I... Just it's what they believe. It's what their voters believe. It is the thing that ties them. It is the broken conservative mindset at its most fundamental. 
Mm. And I don't, I, I'm not surprised that they will come up with any excuse to try and fudge around it. The only reason they don't just propose getting rid of New Start altogether is that that would mobilize too many people against them. But mm. leaving it there, leaving it where they can say it's sort of increasing along with prices on this index that people don't really understand, including us, like it, they they will fudge that till there is nothing that would make them move. I mean, can you, okay, this is the podcast where we're trying to figure out what we can do about it. And I, I've just suggested, I think that the biggest thing we can do about it is to be advocating to workers why a better safety net is in their own interest. So it's not just in the interest of the unemployed, it's in blue collar workers' interests as well. Mm. That's the only way I can think of that we can finally tackle this because I think more than more than anything, a lot of our challenges in terms of changing policy are really about changing that conversation with the coalition's blue-collar voting base, mm. who are people who are really screwed by the coalition but have been tricked into thinking that the coalition will defend the things that matter to them, like their prejudices or their you know hatred of the people slightly further down the ladder. And that's bullshit, and I, I feel like that's that's the fertile ground that we can appeal to. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, other than that, I mean, in terms of persuading the coalition, the Conservative MPs, to change their minds on it, I mean, can you think of anything? Because I, I, the only thing I can yeah. think of is them getting a lot of pressure from blue-collar workers and realising it's incredibly unpopular not to change it. I think even then, it's just too far. Like, if you listen to that, what you just heard Laming say, either he's serious and he's just completely deluded, or he's disingenuous and insincere and he's not going to come around anyway. Well, or both. He, yeah. It's Andrew Laming. Yeah. Um, did you see that um, the... I saw this graphic from one of the papers that somebody had taken a screenshot off on Twitter. Um, and, and this is... I mean, this is where we've where our problem is. It's te- it says, Testing times. Do you support a federal government trial for unemployed people newly claiming new start or youth allowance to undergo drug testing and for those who test positive being put on an income management program involving a cashless welfare card? 70% in favour. 24% opposed. Uh, coalition voters, 91% in favour. Labor voters, 63% in favour. Gen X, 71% in favour. Greens are the only party where they're not, but even then it was 45% in favour of Greens voters. Hmm. Millennials, 68% in favour. Baby boomer, 67% in favour. Like, that's what we're pushing back against. This policy doesn't make any sense if you think about it. The drug testing, why? What's, what is, why are the people who say they're in favour of that, what are they basing that on? Who do they know who, who's unable to look for jobs because they're drug affected, which I suppose would be their justification? Because certainly the justification the Prime Minister gave that um, if you're using drugs, you, you can't be looking for work, even though like their own figures show that a lot of the people who are using drugs are working. Yeah. QED, that not true. <laughs> like, uh, clearly that doesn't stop you getting a job and keeping a job. I'm, sh- I'm sure you could do plenty of toilet uh, testing here at parliament house at the uh, midwinter ball and find that there's lots of employed people doing drugs anyway <laughs> seriously who are these 70 percent of australians like those numbers are disturbingly high of people who think that this i like i'd love some of them to justify it because you know that the only thing that they will be able to say is bullshit oh i think they're they're out there using drugs okay well what are you basing that on and b what's it got to do with you See what's going. Why should they starve? D. Do you think that if somebody was a terrible drug addict who's not working, cutting them off income support is going to have a good outcome? What do you reckon? You you you, you think that you you think against all evidence that there's a horde of uh, unemployed drug addicts roaming around out there, and your plan 
is to starve them. Hmm. Your plan is for them to... Do you think they're going to die in the gutter? Do you think they'll find some other way to get money? What exactly is your thinking there? 70% of Australians who apparently, according to this poll, think it's a good idea. Also, the cashless welfare card. Tell us, what do you think about the cash... What do you understand about the cashless welfare card? Do you understand that it's not actually a financial institution, that it often doesn't work? Do you understand that it stops people um, actually being able to buy groceries and things like markets? Makes it even harder to live. Do you understand that the um, that it's what well, God I've got the numbers like one hundred thirty five dollars a week or a fortnight? Um, New South is under the poverty line. Do you understand how far below the poverty line New South already is? How do you think people are going to survive if you make it even harder for them to make that money stretch? Mm. Like I would love to talk to some of the idiots who've answered yes to this because it's all bullshit. Doesn't it won't stand up to any analysis? People are just basing it purely on this dumb prejudice of. I think that unemployed people are bad and they're probably doing drugs and I want to stop them because drugs are bad, okay? They are bad, though. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't let the poor do them. <laughs> I mean, the riches, they can, the pause, they must be stopped. I, mean, I think the other thing about these surveys, though, is, I mean, this 70% is not a, you know, it's not a referendum. It's a long question that is being asked of the people who are picking up their phone at seven o'clock at night when the telemarketer calls i don't know how representative it it really is if australia is that far gone i hope you're right that's what i yeah i hope i'm right too but i don't don't know but i hope that it's based on a the opinions of a thousand and seventy five respondents YouGov Galaxy. I don't know. Is it an online one? No, it can't be an online one. It must be them ringing. But I don't know what the methodology is and it doesn't say in the image. The results of the recent federal election notwithstanding, it does feel difficult to believe that there are that many monsters in the Australian community and that that many people who are such just (laughs) terrible people who hate the poor so much. (laughs) But then again, they keep on uh, getting publicity. Well, let, let me play you some audio from the mayor of Townsville, Jenny Hill, this was, I actually grabbed this a couple of weeks ago and, and uh, hadn't had the opportunity to play it, but here it is. This is, by the way, the problem she's talking about is uh, charities supporting homeless people in parks in, in uh, Townsville rather than kicking them out. I'm really concerned that some of the agencies haven't really been responding to some of the concerns we're having, particularly around the Aikenvale area, and I'm concerned that some of the agencies are acting more as enablers rather than... Um, attempting to help us solve some of the key issues we have with um, public drunkenness and um, and in many ways a lot of these people aren't homeless they choose to to live that lifestyle um, you know this and it, it's it's an issue it really is an issue we can only do so much um, I constantly hear from businesses they want us to put our community response vehicle to patrol their areas we can't they are a private business. This is about protecting public infrastructure. I'm not going to name them here, but um, there's a couple I'm going to try and visit this week and, and literally put them on the mat. Um, you, you can't go out and, and enable a group without making sure that they, give, they have to give something in return for, for, being a, uh, for your assistance. And we're not seeing that. And people are feeling very much uncomfortable and unsafe in some of these areas. Oh, get fucked. Jenny Hill. Jeez Louise. Uh, Jeremy, 
why do people listen to this podcast? Is it because their blood pressure is too low? Look, what I suggest, so that you can be in perfect balance, is you go down to the beach, you go to a nice, peaceful place where you are the happiest, you relax, and then, because you don't want to have your heart rate drop too low, then you listen to a podcast about what's going on in the country, and then you reach an equilibrium. I mean, that's just infuriating stuff from Jenny Hill. I do have a sponsor that I'm about to play an ad for who I think has something. I think there's something to assist in relation to this specific story too. But yes, what a, what a, what a grab there. I mean, God almighty. The idea that it's, it's horrific to uh, actually support homeless people when really it's, it's about the public infrastructure. And it's about, I mean, that, she's the sort of person who would be putting spikes on park benches mm. to make sure that the lives of the homeless are even more miserable. Well, the, just this idea of the social contract being that uh, everyone needs to pitch in, including those with nothing, they need to make their contribution. I th- I was under the impression the social contract was that we help the most vulnerable, not that we made them uh, help, you know, <laughs> provide the help themselves. Well, I will point you to the party that has uh, temporarily a majority in parliament. In contrast to the idea that that's actually uh, a social contract that, that Australians in general necessarily support, although, of course, uh, only a minority of people in fact voted for that government. So... Yeah, I feel like I feel like there's enough in that quote from Jenny Hill that that there'd be enough people that would be still still retain the the level of basic humanity to object to that. Mm. I mean, the, just the idea that people are choosing to be homeless because they enjoy the lifestyle. <laughs> there's nothing like the lifestyle of being homeless. It's you know you get to sleep under the stars. You get to um, you get sort of like free acupuncture when you sleep on those park benches that they've put spikes on. Well, that's why there's that's why there's so many homeless magazines in the lifestyle section of news agents. <laughs> oh, it is very depressing. Anyway, time for a sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Weeping Uncontrollably. You're sitting there in a waiting room and you pick up a tabloid newspaper. You're cleaning up after your children whilst listening to a podcast. And there it is. You've just learned of a new cruelty imposed by the people in power in this country on the most vulnerable. How can you process this new horror? What can you do? Try weeping uncontrollably. It won't solve the problem, but it will mean that you still retain your ability to object to atrocities as they happen. 100% more effective at retaining your basic humanity than its nearest competitor, numb resignation. Try weeping uncontrollably today. Yeah, I'm Pretty happy that we've finally got the uh, support of uh, of that organisation, actually. I think there's a really good fit between what they have to sell and this podcast. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the best commercial fits I think I've ever seen. Meanwhile, uh, and, and also keep them in mind when you hear the next story, which is uh, in relation to the story, we've had the Extinction Rebellion protests. We've had uh, mass arrests, including of uh, former Greens Senator Scott Ludlam uh, and the absurd bail conditions the police tried to impose, including that he couldn't go within 25 kilometres of where the court was going to be that was going to hear the <laughs> Brilliant! Uh, which was, weirdly enough, overturned. But they also wanted terms that, that of bail that they couldn't interact in any way with people who were also supporters of Extinction Rebellion protests. Like, mm. how would you... Like, the same laws that are there to stop... In fact, when they try to use bikey gangs as justification to take away all our civil liberties, and they're like, no, no, don't worry, it'll just apply to bikey gangs, these association laws and so forth. And then, weirdly enough, it doesn't just apply to bikey gangs. It applies more generally to the rest of us in ways that would be impossible not to breach. Because who knows who supports Extinction Rebellion? It's not like they have a clubhouse. Well, if I could just say something uh, on uh, the topic of bikies, I was on a uh, bikies 
Facebook page doing a little uh, research uh, just the other day, and they uh, had a little comment on this. They're like, oh, see you lefties, we told you that uh, they'd use the bikey laws against everyone eventually, and then all of the comments were people saying, yeah, what? I'm a bikey and I support Extinction Rebellion, and we knew that, and we said it at the same time as well. Yes, I'm, I'm fairly sure the people who were opposed to those laws were lefties. Yeah, dickheads. Did you hear Peter Dutton calling for vigilante action on the protesters? I think I might have missed that one. What, what was his uh, take? People should take these names and the photos of these people and distribute them as far and wide as they can so that we shame these people, shame them because of the actions that they've committed and because they're acting outside of the law and against community standards. Let their families know uh, what you think of their behaviour. Just out of interest, is it okay if we let Peter Dutton's family know what we think of what he's been doing? Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, Peter Dutton has very strange calculus that he's doing here. Anyone who's glued themselves to the road, their family knows about it already. <laughs> um, I, I'm just thrilled to learn that Peter Dutton is actually familiar with the concept of shame. Yeah, this is a good, this is a good step in the right direction. <laughs> like, so much of what we need to have happen and to change in Peter Dutton does involve him finally grasping the notion of shame, and then the next step being to be able to apply it where that shame is warranted. Mm. But so imagine, <laughs> imagine, it's baby steps. if you were. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, dickheads on the commercial networks have been getting even more vicious in their calls. And by dickheads on commercial networks, naturally, I mean Kerry Ann Kennelly. So you remember her vicious racist remarks last year, the ones where she was basically uh, saying that anybody who was protesting to move. Uh, was it last year or was it just like in January this year? We're basically people protesting against um, using Invasion Day for Australia Day. And she's like, well, have they gone up to the Indigenous communities where they're filled with rape and basically the most vicious racial vilification you can imagine? And then she's like, but I'm not racist. I'm, I was just observing a problem that's real. Like massively inflating it like it's actually a characteristic of Indigenous people or something. But anyway... Uh, did you see Channel 10 came back? We'll get to Carrie-Anne Kennelly about the climate protests in a sec, but did you see that um, ACMA came back with the complaints about Carrie-Anne's little rant? You saw that? Yes, I did see that, and I think you'll find that she was not racist because somebody called her racist at the time, which makes the initial comments not racist. That sounds remarkably like the old John Clark sketch about how John Howard is an honest man. Yes. An honest man is not a man who is honest. An honest man is a man who is dishonest, but who's quite honest about it. A man who hides his dishonesty, now he'd be a dishonest man. But disarming honesty about previous dishonesty is apparently okay. Of course, the dishonesty in the first instance is annulled by the subsequent honesty, and any reference back to it would be the act of a dishonest political point scorer. But in fact, nobody has actually found that Kerry ann Kennelly wasn't racist. ACMA didn't find that. ACMA simply is applying the very lame, weak broadcasting standards, which barely restrict the media in any way. Uh, and even when they do, the punishments are incredibly flimsy. So there's really very little restriction on them this is true. broadcasting this crap, which is, I mean, Alan Jones. It's how we have these, uh, uh, everything on Sky. Uh, anyway, so uh, Carrie ann Kennelly still being on television. Um, so Ackman came back and basically said that the, the segment hadn't breached their standards uh, to the point where there'd be actually a punishment. And the basis on which they found that, because they certainly found, they actually did find that her remarks had been basically a form of racial vilification, effectively. But they found that, it, it, that the segment overall didn't have that impact because Yumi Steins had immediately called her out on it. 
so it wasn't like one editorial line being pushed in a half away. It was a, a there was a balance, um, but the balance certainly wasn't from Kerry Ann Kennelly. And for Kerry Ann Kennelly to be pretending that, that that there was a finding that she hadn't been problematically racist, no. <laughs> I mean, not not that ACMA clearing her would have been the greatest test because it's, they're not a body that's set up to evaluate that in any meaningful way anyway, but that is, but even they they did not actually find that. But anyway, that was Carrie ann Kennelly back in, I guess, January. Then again this week. So she's... God, she, I never realised when she was hosting like the midday show and things and you know, the, the, the sort of the garbage light variety stuff. What a vicious right-wing hack she is. But yeah, here are Kerry Ann Kennelly's remarks, uh, violent sort of remarks, um, which she later says, it's a joke. Cam, if you if you talk about um, basically somebody being killed or seriously injured, uh, somebody who you politically disagree with, it, it's okay if it's a joke. Yeah, it's just a joke. And it can be a joke whenever you say it's a joke, even if they, even if it seems threatening, even if it's like, um, even in context, it's a, a, a math... A, um, an argument for having no sympathy for cruelty being done to them, for the Queensland government passing a lot of incredibly rest- restrictive and oppressive laws to um, stop protest. Uh, like, clearly there was a political point to her um, going down this path. But no, it's just for comedy, Cam. It's for comedy. Lighten up. Yeah, classic comedian, Kerry Ann Kennelly. And in fact, these are two bits of audio that I've taken, which I are either on two different days or they're two occasions the same morning. And her, because the response to her saying the same vicious stuff seems to be slightly different each time. Yeah. Um, I think it's either it's from the same day and morning television people are incredibly repetitive, or they're from different days and morning television people are incredibly repetitive. Yeah, being repetitive is their job. Spot the difference. Here are two bits of audio of Kerry Ann Kennelly saying the same noxious shit, and nobody stopped her after the first one, and she's saying it again. They, they sound different enough that I think they're two different things. I don't think it's the same audio spliced in slightly different ways. But, you know, let your ears be the judge. And if they are the same bit of audio spliced two different ways and my ears are just terrible, then you get to enjoy her saying a horrible thing twice. Let them just... You know the ones that super glue themselves to the road or to camera? I think they just leave them super glued there and use them as speed bumps. Oh, Gary, yeah! Gary, yeah! No, eventually they'll get them off. Go, go round them then. I mean, just to have to drive around. Vegans came after me for what I said. You're in trouble next, lady. Lucky you can't use Facebook. Lucky I don't do any of that stuff. We'll give him a stack hat. Yeah. I'll be right. Nobody should do anything. Leave them there and you just put little witches' hats around them and use them as a speed bump. Oh, God, you're going to get us into trouble. Then your letters Again? to the Today Show. Look, is Hit that wrong? But they're, they're actually wearing this jail time, this potential jail time, as yeah. a badge of honour. I think hit them where it hurts. Um, find them big time, but jail time's they... a bit a bit out there, isn't no, it? No, put them in jail and forget to feed them. <laughs> jail time? Is yes. this a bit extreme? Oh, no. no really? I, personally, I'd leave them all super glued to wherever they do it like forever till they get themselves uh, the guy hanging from the story bridge why why send emergency services to look after or get a moron down leave him there till he's he gets himself out no no emergency <laughs> services should help them nobody should do anything leave him there and you just put little witches hats around them and try or use them as a speed bump Oh, Carrie Ann, God, you're going to go into trouble. Send your letters Again? to... 
the Today Show. Look, is that know. wrong? But they're, they're actually wearing this jail time, this potential jail time, as yeah. a badge of honour. I think hit them where it hurts. Um, find them big time, but jail time they... is a bit, a bit out there. Isn't no, it? put them in jail and forget to feed them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Have you seen, have you seen how sick no, these guys are? No, just put them in an aged care, some them. of the aged care homes around Australia, some of the aged care homes. That would really sort them out. And that's broadcast, and everybody's laughing. They're, they're, and they are response. Did you notice that their whole that the other panelists' response is mainly the oh, "You're going to get in trouble. We can't say that kind of thing on television." It's basically the "Oh no, you're going to piss off the snowflakes," rather than being like, "Are you unwell?" Hmm. Also, it's again back to what Ida was talking about. Just, you know, we can't say they, they're saying, "Oh, you can't say that anymore," but but she they, just did. They just said it. <laughs> I think she said it twice. How is it a joke? How is, I think it'd be okay to run over them? Like, what, what do you... Look, I'm not, I'm not a comic expert. Um, Cam, you've had, you've had been involved in shows at the Comedy Festival. Like, my understanding of, of a joke is, it's not just saying something horrible that will hurt people and then being like, isn't it funny that I hurt them? Is that a joke? Does it count hmm. as a joke? Can you broadly define that as a joke? It's a funny one, but not really. What I find interesting about that and a lot of the right-wing discussion about this is they are, they, their first reaction is, oh, you're going to offend the snowflakes, but look at how uh, shaken they've been by this very simple action of people lying down on the road. Well, that's right. Like We're responding with a bit of horror to the level of violent rage from these people but their violent rage so we're being like hang on stop doing that that's harmful and they're like run over these people because they were inconvenienced and in fact well i guess, I guess it's the next thing we're going to talk about which is um what the palestine government what, the, the broader topic of, of labor being as, as anti-progressive as it can be but the the queensland government passing all these new restrictions to harm people who are protesting and to try and stop, take away people's right to protest in ways that are remarkably reminiscent of the, you know, J.B.O.K. Peterson era. And, and in fact, if you, you can play, you can put like quotes from, from ministers at the, the J.B.O.K. Peterson time trying to crush protests alongside uh, quotes from the, the current state Labor government in Queensland doing the same thing. But their whole excuse is these people are endangering lives. They're blocking ambulances. Cam, can I play you a bit of audio of uh, an Extinction Rebellion uh, protest as an ambulance comes up to it? Go for it. So, in the video, this is an ambulance coming up to Extinction Rebellion protesters blocking the road. The ambulance comes up, they will move completely out of the way. The ambulance goes through, they applaud, and the protest continues. In other words, they're not blocking emergency vehicles. Now, I'll say, in fairness, I'll say that I've, I remember APEC 2007 when I was at a mass meeting where they were talking about blocking the road, and it ended up getting voted down because they're like, what if an ambulance needs to come through? So perhaps you could make the argument that Extinction Rebellion have developed the exciting new technology of moving out of the road <laughs> that hasn't always been there but uh yeah it's just well the justifications uh, are lies straw- they're lies like they're, yeah that's straw the, 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 the thing like you know back to the um 
refugees thing where, where we, we pretend that the cruelty to them and the stopping them coming here is to save their lives, even though we were doing that long before that excuse was even thought of. And, it's got no, and, and you know, belling the cat that that's a lie. Likewise, the issue here is that there's actual protests that might have some effect on bringing com- uh, the conversation back to what's happening with the Dani, which, according to all the science on it, is a massive, dangerous, you know, ecological time bomb that is going to cause immense damage to all of us uh, for a paltry number of jobs and the state Labor government might, might have decided that they're just going to go ahead with it. But that doesn't mean, like, you don't just step by and go, oh, well, you know, the government's decided they're going to do it and destroy it, you know, cause this huge harm to all the rest of us. I guess it's just time to move on. Like, of course we're protesting it. And of course people are fighting it because it's important. And, yeah, insofar as you get this commentary, oh, this vacuous commentary from dickheads like Joe Hildebrand being like, oh, well, you know, you're not changing any minds by inconveniencing people. Like... Well, first of all, in terms of the political impact, it, it is having a political political impact because we're talking about it, like where the government would like us to just move on. We're not. It's still in the papers. We're still discussing it, which is important. It's certainly better than ignoring it. Um, hmm. and, and yeah, maybe, the, point, the point of these things isn't like the way that people are trying to persuade the particular motorist who's inconvenienced. It's, no. it's a significantly broader the, than the that. The point is... The point is to disrupt capital to the point where it becomes more politically expedient to tackle the very important issue of climate change than to yeah. ignore it. Um, and I, I love all the objections that are being like, you know, no, nobody's ever achieved anything by inconveniencing motorists or inconveniencing people. It's like, yes, you know, you're, you're right. All of the great protest, you know, great protest movements of history that that they first of all never inconvenienced anyone, and you know, they never achieved anything. Like every every advancement, every civil right that we have. You know, from from basic labour rights through to voting rights for for um, people who, I mean, you know, it's not like Cam the suffragettes inconvenienced anyone. Well, they didn't inconvenience uh, people in cars, just people on horses. <laughs> well, they inconvenienced people with shop windows. They inconvenienced people at that event. Yeah, um, if the idea, the patronising idea from from dickheads like Hildebrand and being like. No, you know, you should just, just do it quietly and politely and everything will be fine. Meanwhile, on Sky After Dark, they're screaming that any kind of action, you know, a, a rebate on solar panels is destroying civilization. Like, I mean, the one thing that progressives have is numbers. And the protest, uh, the method, protest has been the only way that we've managed to achieve most of the advances that we have, has been through people being organized and pissed off and, and getting in the way. That's the only way it's ever happened in history, really. What are the other ways that it's happened? Mm. Quite like how you never you never start off having the power to be, have people even listen to your argument if you're pushing up against the the status quo. Like every advance has been through a protest movement, through a movement that has inconvenienced people and been you can't do it nicely and politely. That doesn't work. No, it's never worked. I guess it comes back to uh, that topic that we often come back to is that uh, they they want everything to be polite, even if you're doing terrible things. Right, because that's actually the defense. The, a, a cool to niceness is actually a defense of the status quo. It's it's the way that the status quo doesn't get challenged in any meaningful way because the status quo already has all the power to quite. It's, it's not. It doesn't sit down and have a genuine debate of ideas whether whether you know <laughs> on a level playing field. Capital doesn't do that. 
And and the call to you to just follow the rules that it sets is a call to achieve nothing, to let to to sit back and let them do whatever they want. And in the case of you know, climate change, that's going to be disastrous. But even if you felt that niceness was something to aspire to, even though it's just a call for the status quo, you still wouldn't have to go as far as Labor has gone in being as craven and as helpful to the Conservatives as they possibly can be. And obviously we've got a situation now where they are um, threatening to cut things in order to keep their special surplus. They project The, the surplus that is like, they're $700 million short, but that's a rounding error apparently. It's down the back of the couch. Yeah, and the news this week from, which we probably shouldn't skip over, but we're going to skip over now that basically Australia's economy is now worse than Greece's and um, we don't have the buffer that we would have had if we hadn't had $158 billion taken out of the revenue stream with the tax cuts that haven't in any way stimulated growth. Hmm. Weird that. But, okay, Labor voted for that. What else have they done? Well, on Thursday this week, they voted with the coalition who wants to take $3.9 billion from the Education Investment Fund to go to disaster relief. Now, they could fund the disaster relief without taking money out of the Education Investment Fund that they desperately want to destroy, but the Liberals want to destroy it. And so naturally, Labor has turned around and gone, will you put a small amount of money towards TAFEs? Okay, we'll vote for it then. Yep. Business as usual. I noticed that they're not interested in funding disaster prevention in the form of any sort of climate change action, but... No, 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 no. What we do is we burn the planet down, uh, and then whenever we need to deal with it, we hit some program that we don't like, yeah. like you know, educational resources that are used. In fact, this one's more to do with research and so forth. But, you know, does it have an immediate commercial benefit? If it did, the commercial sector would be funding it. Why is there public research into anything? We should only research things that are immediately financially beneficial for various corporations. Do we need? Yeah. Do we really need research in a post-apocalyptic Mad Max wasteland? I mean, I, th- I think that question answers itself. Mm. Did you see that Miles was also out there giving a speech to the John Curtin Institute, um, where he was telling them? Uh, sorry, these are the quotes. Uh, I don't have audio of it. I've just got to read it. We won't win the next election simply relying on a big spending agenda. Nor running. Sorry, just can I interrupt myself in the middle of that? Mm. I, I really resent the idea that funding public services, necessary public services, not starving the poor, having a decent safety net, having decent public education, public health. They, that's a big, big spending, spending agenda. agenda. Oh, go fuck yourselves. <laughs> no, that's competent government that maintains the community. Anyway, we won't win the next election simply relying on a big spending agenda nor running on the policies of the past in glossy brochures promising a solution to everything for everyone, Mr. Miles said. Seriously, like, why, why, why do we even need the, the um, LNP if, if the Labor Party has front pensions who's just going to be like, we promise everything to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, we will win it, said Mr. Miles, with a clear and persuasive argument about the kind of society a Labor government will build. One that, at its core, provides a bedrock for growth and productivity. And with it, we offer the Australian people a legitimate embrace of aspiration. Like, Scummo could have said that. Yeah. Growth and productivity, a legitimate embrace of aspiration. That's that's basically the LNP. I mean, they don't mean it. They they only mean further resources going to the rich and powerful. Like, they don't actually mean that they actually intend to help people aspire to better themselves because as you can see by cutting public health and public education public education that's the means by which somebody who is not born into wealth could aspire to build wealth in their system and yet they sabotage that so like they don't mean it 
It's just a, it's a buzzword for if you've got stuff, you must deserve it. Well, I noticed that he says that uh, where they're offering the Australian people a legitimate embrace of aspiration, but that's not the same as giving the Australian people what they're aspiring to. They're just saying everyone can is free to <laughs> <That's> aspire. <true. laughs> Dream on. We, we're we're certainly happy with you dreaming. It's it's fairly easy to provide the ability to dream. Oh, dear. That's Miles. That's... Uh, so, I, I think he's formerly been um, their spokesperson, or may still be, actually, uh, on backing the government in on, on uh, cruelty to refugees. Like, Miles is a menace, and Miles should just quit and join them. Miles should do a mundane. Leave the ALP, join the Libs. Like, if you're so subservient to their bullshit rhetoric and their vicious philosophy, it's that isn't... Uh, he, he had some other remarks, which I don't seem to have grabbed there, about how Hawke and Keating is or about, about that and about aspiration. Like, yeah, um, that, those are reasons why the Libs are quite positive about Hawke and Keating now, because they were actually pretty incredibly right-wing. Mm. They, they, really, they really did in the union movement. They really did in um, they, public services and public ownership of utilities. Um, a lot of the things that went horribly wrong, uh, like the bedrock for Howard was, was Hawke and Keating. Like using them as an example of hey of good quality labor values. No, they're really the point at which labor went nah to hell with this. Yeah, notice that they never go back a little bit further. Well, no, and I mean, but and to a large extent, Hawke and Keating were a reaction to Whitlam, in the sense that Whitlam actually did a bunch of progressive things in the very short period of time that they, that they got, and then after being thumped so badly afterwards, the ALP was shell shocked and. Like I think that was really the start of them being this gutless echo of the conservatives and just trying to be basically a slightly less harsh version, but still, you know, very much neoliberal. I mean, Hawke took us to war in Iraq the first time. Hmm. Yeah, if, I mean, if they are going to aspire to anyone, to relate to anyone, it should be Whitlam because any election they win is going to be very short-lived if they continue the way they're going. They offer nothing to the electorate. <laughs> Well, like, how long do they expect to be in power? They need to get things done quickly, Whitlam style. Well, that's if they want to do anything. But um, if their entire yeah. aim is to just be in in government and have the trappings of government, and then their justification is, well, we'll be slightly less harsh than the libs, then I suppose their feeling is, as long as they don't frighten the horses and they can appeal to um, enough sort of swinging voters, people who will vote Labor or Liberal, who are therefore dickheads. Um, if they can appeal to them enough, then when the pendulum swings and the libs sabotage themselves, then people will look at Labor as being a safe alternative and they'll vote for them anyway. Like, I think they their whole philosophy is just one of, it'll come to us, we're the other big party, we don't have to win it off them, we just have to, you know... But the problem is that, that it never really turns on the on the other side if you keep backing them in. Not just by not actually standing up against them um, by putting anything, you know, more progressive, but repeating their lines. Like, I don't understand why Labor hasn't grasped that that doesn't work. Mm. Uh, it It's not like the Liberals won government back with Tony Abbott vote backing in everything that Rudd and Gillard were doing. He stood up there and just said, no, 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 no. Like, they, their opposition that was very effective was to basically scream that everything that Labor was doing was the end of the country. And it was effective. Like, just chipping away, chip, chip, chip. But this Labor Party is like, oh, you know, having difficulty selling the message to the electorate that um, tax cuts are good 
or that we need to be cruel to refugees. That's fine. We'll, we'll back those lines in for you. We'll repeat them. We'll argue them for you. Yeah. We'll go further. We'll say you're not doing enough to refugees. <sighs> it's depressing as hell. The Conservatives only got through by just hammering their lines over and over until they gradually seeped into the consciousness. They, they did the work to an extent. They just kept it going. And to be fair, it's easier for them because they have vastly more support in the media space. Like, weirdly enough, uh, poor lefties don't tend to own media companies. But it was still this relentless thing. And there are versions that Labor can push. And, for example, as we were talking about earlier, the, the, on issues like Social Security, Labor needs to be repeatedly pointing out that... Because have you heard that the, the coalition is running this line now that it's not supposed to be a good living, it's just a safety net? Like, they're actually referring to it as a safety net. Why Labor can't grab that and be like, it's a safety net the Libs are cutting holes in. Mm. Like, use their... I mean, they're, they're adopting the imagery. Like, that's what it... Correct, it's supposed to be a safety net. Well, yeah. how can you not... How are you incapable of pummeling that back and saying, yeah, it has to be... And it has to be enough that you can... If you can't live on it, if you can't survive, then it's not a safety net. If you get, if you're at risk of any whim of a right wing government of being cut off mm. it out of spite, if you're at risk of some malevolent job network provider person who makes a cock up and then you get cut off, which is what happens, it's not a safety net anymore. No, and if they're saying it's not supposed to be a good living, it's supposed to be enough to live on. Yeah, it's supposed to. You be. have to. <laughs> you have to be able to live. The alternative is to die. Yeah, and people have been dying. And, and, and pissing off Townsville mayors by, by daring to be homeless in her parks. Yeah. Well, uh, choosing to be homeless in their parks. It really leaves you feeling you just need some way of dealing with it. This podcast is brought to you by pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. Sometimes terrible things happen. Sometimes vicious extremists get to put your basic humanity to a public vote. And then, even when they lose that public vote, they get new powers to harm you anyway. Sometimes a public vote results in a mob of incompetent monsters being granted a majority of seats in Parliament when most people voted against them. Sometimes the people and organisations who are meant to be there to push back against the worst and most destructive ideas of that mob completely give in and decide instead to back them, leaving you with no idea how anything could ever be okay again. That's when you need pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. Find a nature strip, a lawn, a field. Pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish is available almost everywhere. Kneel on the ground, lean forward and just pummel the earth with your hands until physical exhaustion drowns out the deep sorrow and fear threatening to overtake you. Comparable to banging your head against the nearest surface, but 75% less likely to result in serious injury. We are confident you will at least be mildly satisfied by pounding your fists into the dirt in frustration and anguish. Yeah, I think that kind of sponsor is exactly uh, relevant to pretty much everything in this week's episode. I thought that what I might do next, now that you're fully prepared to deal with uh, reactions and feelings that might arise from dealing with this, uh, I might mention Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby. Uh, did you see that he had a debate with Fiona Patton this week at the National Press Club? I did. Uh, on the government's uh, extra powers for religious people to discriminate against LGBTI people bill. Although they don't call it that. I didn't watch the actual debate, but I have heard the opening remarks. All right. Well, may maybe what we should do is start by playing those. And when we, you listen to this, just keep in mind 
that at no point is there a reference given to any of the cases that Martin cites. These are all cases that I have seen him email out to his supporters about. But they're always missing a critical detail, which is, mm. what was the other side thinking? What is this, what is this actually about? And, and the content, you, you always notice there's these huge omissions about uh, what exactly it was that was said, uh, what exactly, so where, where they're talking about just spreading the church's teaching. What exactly were they saying? Where they're saying, was praying, what exactly was the context? What like, you never get that detail, and you never get, if you go trying to find these examples, it's really hard to find what really happened. Anyway, let, let, let Martin open his speech his case for why the government's uh, religious discrimination bills should be passed. Thank you. I'm here to speak in favour of the concept of religious freedom because it is something that is intrinsically human. Humans wonder. They ponder the meaning of life, they ask ultimate questions, and they live in the light of them. That's the human story. It's been happening for millennia, it's happening today. And religious freedom is the protection of that human aspiration to understand and to live accordingly. There's nothing more human than that. And in that freedom, actually, is true diversity, because that freedom accommodates actual difference. People who actually disagree, who actually have different views on ultimate purpose and meaning, who actually do live differently to each other. Our own High Court has said freedom of religion, the paradigm freedom of conscience, is the essence of a free society. And there's something in that, because there's countless societies around our world and in history that have had limited religious freedom, and none of them have been good places to live. So religious freedom is good. It's the hallmark of a free society. It's the hallmark of diversity. It's the hallmark of human rights. And I'm grateful to live in Australia, where freedom of religion has long been a key principle of our democracy. But my support for the particular aims of this bill the Religious Discrimination Bill 2019, is grounded in a more practical concern. In 2016, myself and some others started a law firm, or it is now a law firm, the Human Rights Law Alliance, designed to give legal support to those who need it for living out their faith. And I remember saying to a colleague at the time that actually it's the first business model I've had anything to do with that entails failure being success, because we don't want that to be a need. Unfortunately, that firm has gone from strength to strength and has had dozens and dozens of cases. I'll give you a couple of examples today. There is, for example, Anthony, a university student who had peers that shared things with him from time to time because he's a personable guy, and one of the things he used to do with their permission was pray for them. Anthony had a complaint against him from a young lady who he prayed for with her permission because she was struggling with depression. The university, as a result of talking to Anthony, uh, ended up suspending him for a period of six months pending review, ended up uh, saying that he would have to be involved in fortnightly counselling classes to learn how to interact with his peers, ended up saying that uh, uh, he would uh, not be able to speak about his religion openly on campus and he had discipline recorded on his academic record. I didn't believe that either when I heard about it, but it was true when we investigated. <laughs> or Melissa, a medical doctor with 40 years of experience. She's a leader in her field which covers gender and sexuality issues. She's a Christian. She was asked to speak in some Christian schools about these concerns. She gave those talks which were rigorously academic but which were also Christian in worldview. 
Somebody saw those talks, stalked her for a while, assaulted her in her local shops, but also reported her to a university where she had an academic status and a professional body with which she had an accreditation. She lost that accreditation. The university, with substantial legal support for her, preserved her academic status, but not without a stern warning. Or Chris and Mary are foster parents. They applied to be respite carers for foster children under the age of six. Now, they went through the foster agency's uh, selection programs and they passed with flying colours and the relationship was great. They fully expected to be enrolled in that program until they had to do one more workshop, which was about sexual orientation, gender identity issues. And as Christians, they filled out that workshop as best they could and there was nothing particularly controversial about it as Christian people. Uh, but of course they said, well, this workshop was completely irrelevant, and it was in its terms, to children under the age of six. However, they received a decision notice off the back of that that they had failed the criteria of creating a safe home environment for children and they would decline the right to be foster parents. Another is Andrew. Who... I am one of those people I described at the start who wonders, thinks and lives. These are my life. They always will be. And I don't think that anybody should ever be discriminated against for that simple fact. Thank you. Yeah, so he says that there are hundreds of these cases. Yeah, I don't, I don't disbelieve that there are hundreds of cases that he and his... Um, his I, like, I like that they call their campaign against human rights but for religious rights at the expense of human rights. They, they, he calls his, his uh, law centre the, the, the Human Rights Legal Alliance or the Law Alliance or something. Yeah, it's, it's as if... It's, you know, it's like the Democratic Republic of Korea. That's that kind of thing. Um, I'm sure that he has got hundreds of these examples where he has had a whinge, but I'm also sure that each of those examples does not in any way sound like what he presents them as. And that no. if he were to... I, I feel like every time he does that, the media need to call him on it and ask him for evidence. And in fact, it was an extreme relief to hear... Uh, substantially later in that press club address. So he basically got to say all this stuff and then have it sit there for a long time. But eventually, Mark Kenny from the ANU stood up and asked him this. Uh, Mark Kenny from the uh, press club board, also from the ANU. Um, I have, I'm yet to hear any compelling reason why we're even having this debate, why we're even having this push forward for this law. This, the, the, the list of uh, examples that you gave, Martin, at the uh, beginning uh, seemed to me to be uh, pretty marginal cases. They were one-sided versions of it. I'm sure if we looked into the uh, transcripts of those uh, proceedings, we'd find that uh, you know the other side had a particular view about it. It wasn't simply that someone had prayed for someone and that was that. Um, you can defend that argument if you like, but if that is the strength of the argument for this, then I'm wondering why the government is wasting so much time on trying to deliver rights that, uh, that uh, essentially are there. And I'm also wondering why the churches take the view that they, and, and seem to have no compunction about this, that they can have discrimination within their organisations and yet seek to discriminate against people in, in, in organisations which they run. Um, it seems to me to be a staggering piece of hypocrisy and I'd uh, appreciate your response. Um, so the major sections of the bill that we've debated today are in response to actual cases. So um, the section about state-based anti-discrimination law is in response to the Archbishop Julian Porteous case. Uh, the section about statements of belief is in response to the Israel Folau case. Those are two high-profile public cases which demonstrate staggering overreach, particularly in the Porteous case. Uh, and though there isn't another side of the story that's, you know, really changes the complexion of that. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that Martin raises the, the Archbishop Porteous case, which I think we're, we're all aware that, that that case didn't go anywhere. 
in fact, the, 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 the complaint was, was removed. Um, I actually had a different experience. Um, I'd like to call it the patent clause because um, I was taken to task in the Tasmanian anti-discrimination legislation for an ad that was called the Vatican Can. Um, and it was shown online and um, a Tasmanian took great offence at this and took me to task for, uh, for offending his religious beliefs. Now, we went through a mediation process and that was resolved and I actually think that that was a good process and the existing processes are in place. Israel Folau has got numerous other pieces of legislation. In fact, he's in the courts right now without this bill. And he's in there and he's successfully probably um, arguing his case. So, no, I can't see any reason for this legislation except as a sop uh, to various conservative groups because of the equal, the Marriage Equality Act. Martin doesn't actually cite the details of the case, but I suppose it's not really the environment to do it. But it would be helpful if the media actually came up to him afterwards. Or, in fact, any of the journalists simply sent him um, a request for citations of the cases in question and then went through them. Uh, it's beyond the scope of this podcast to do it. But I think it would be very helpful if, we, if journalists did. And in relation to the two cases he cites, yeah, uh, I can see why he wants to be a bit vague about the details of the other ones. Because... No matter how much they misrepresent them, the Porteous case is one where he put out a booklet basically accusing LGBTI people of being a threat to children, mm. and a trans person complained, and all that happened is that they had a mediation, and he said, "No, I'm not going to change anything," uh, and they and they withdrew the complaint. But he he said um, in his own remarks, he said that the process had been valuable, like he'd heard another side. So why exactly is this an example of a reason why we need federal legislation to stop this happening again? This terrible occasion where somebody who put out something horrific and damaging and harmful in a community where, you know, it was still illegal for people to be gay until the 1990s in Tasmania. Like, mm. this, is not a, this is not a far-off situation. Um, it's a place... It's a, there's still lots of homophobic violence. Homophobia like that causes harm. I'm willing to bet that, that Martin Isles and, and uh, Julian Portis haven't haven't got it, haven't watched uh, Nanette, for example. Mm. But um, I think Hannah Gadsby sets out some pretty a pretty clear example of the kind of uh, the consequences of that kind of hate speech running rampant in a community. And the Israel Folau thing is the same thing. He was basically suggesting he put out uh, publicly. He used his prominent soapbox to harm LGBTI people. He saying that that they were equivalent to uh, criminals. And he has a lot of influence in a com in in the sporting community in um his uh, in his ethnic community like he has a lot of influence and those that kind of speech persecuting an already marginalized and vulnerable group that are already the victim of hate crimes yeah that does harm and in contrast you see whenever when if you had a patterns example at the end that that where uh somebody's religious sensibilities were offended because she put out something mocking the Vatican. Like, I feel, I feel like it's hard to call the Vatican a marginalised and oppressed organisation. Have you been to the Vatican, Cam? Mm, it's, uh, yeah, they're not exactly marginalised, except in the eyes of, you know, the Andrew Bolts of the world. Uh, they're, well, they're, <laughs> well, but if you're, if you're an archbishop and you're fleeing uh, prosecution for the uh, pedophilia you've committed, the Vatican can even shield you from that. Um. Mm. Unless, unless you, you come back and think that you can probably get away with... Uh, you're powerful enough to get away with it uh, and then turn out to be wrong. Uh, well, hopefully wrong. We, we, 
still hasn't completely played out. Um, but yeah, if you, anytime anyone who's been to the Vatican, it's like you just look at the vast wealth in that thing, and what a giant f you to the world's poor that place really is. Like, how much wealth did they? And and they largely tithed it off the bloody poor too. Like, not only did they fail to support the poor and help the poor, they tithed, they built this edifice to their own greed. Anyway, my point is, Fiona Patton mocking the Vatican. Still got a that got a complaint on the grounds that it was harming somebody's religious sensibilities, as opposed to actually causing somebody harm in who they are. Like, if somebody says something critical of your religion and of your, um, you know, the, the powerful religious institutions, does that really do you harm, or? And if it does, like, by hurting your feelings, is that in any way equivalent to somebody out there trying to whip up the kind of homophobia that leads to... Um, LGBTI activist in Uganda murdered this week. Uh, this... Uganda... You know whenever they turn around, the, fun, the, the right-wing people turn around and be like, oh, you, you people uh, want to be supportive of the Muslims, but they don't like the gays. Look what, they, what happens in Saudi Arabia and places. And you're like, uh, we also know what happens in places with fundamentalist Christianity. Like Uganda. Yeah. And bear in mind that uh, there are fundamentalist Christian organisations in places like Uganda who are funded by groups like the Australian Christian yeah. Lobby in the States and Australia and the Western world. Yeah. It's, it's not that much hard to believe that uh, there, there is a spectrum and we are trying to push away from that end of it and they would quite like to push back towards it. Mm. Uh, and that's what we're fighting for. And the, the and and as Mark, Mark Kenny Art points out at the end, there's been no justification given to the bill. So, um, for our, um, if if you want to have a situation where employees are better protected in terms of their freedom of speech outside of work from employers, great. Let's have that legislation. Yep, yeah, <laughs> weirdly, that's not what's being proposed. We're just talking about a special privilege if that speech is religious. We're not talking about changing things so that Michaela Benerji, um, who the High Court decided that. Uh, upheld the government being able to sack her for anonymously being critical of the government. Like, you don't have political freedom if you're a public servant. Oh, but you can be quite partisan as long as it's in support of the government. Yeah. Um, no, we're, we're, so the Israel Flower thing, I, I agree that his employer shouldn't have that power over him, but I, I, but, the, the concept, but I still don't think he should be allowed to do what he should be doing. Like, I think there should be uh, workplace laws that protect workers from that. Uh, from being from being um, having their their speech uh, controlled outside of work by their employer, uh, but simultaneously there should be hate speech protections protecting LGBTI people from uh, prominent cranks who want to cause them harm. They want to whip up homophobia in communities where that will cause harm. Like this is a country where homophobic violence is a real thing, but we're not debating vilification protections being extended to LGBTI people. That's not even on the agenda. Like, they've been very successful in pushing the debate to be like, should they have more powers? Like, Mm. we're not even talking about... The the idea, I suppose, was after marriage equality, we kind of thought, well, let's finish off the the project of having equality for LGBTI people and remove the other areas of the law that continue to either discriminate against them or allow them to be discriminated against. Being, for example, that they can still be sacked by an organisation that's peripherally connected to the religion, um, and they can uh, and they can be vilified in a harmful and dangerous way without any consequence. Well, those are two things that should be addressed. We're not talking about that. Instead, we're talking about this quid pro quo, where well, they got they got married, they got their equality that they wanted, um, 
Don't we get something too? No, you dickheads. You got the vote that we didn't want to have. You got that. And you lost. Why exactly do you get any more powers? You didn't win. You lost. Yeah. Your own dumb process. I note that um the marriage of Australia people have moved on to uh, being called binary Australia now. Oh, the marriage alliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Curly Smith. The marriage alliance. God, she's a hateful crank. You know, if you, if you want to have your blood pressure raised and need the uh, products and services that were advertised earlier in the program, yeah, yeah, no, subscribe to the binary uh, <laughs> mailing list because your blood pressure will go through the roof. And she said they, they just take great delight in uh, constantly misgendering people and presenting um, trans women as, as a threat. And, and, they, they, and by the way, any TERFs, any trans-exclusionary radical feminists... Um, like the ones that the Greens really need to get rid of at this point. Um, yeah, good, good on you that uh, the, uh, the vicious homophobes are, are your allies. Yeah, you like like hanging out with the binary cranks? Far-right fundamentalist um, churches? What, what great allies you've got for yourselves. <laughs> anyway, the other thing I wanted to say about Isles is like, any time one of his claims is looked into, there's a reason why I refer to the Australian Christian Lobby as the Association of Cynical Liars. Because they misrepresent everything. They are not acting in, ironically, good faith. They are happy to lie and dissemble. You saw it, we saw it um, in a recent episode, we had the audio where they were trying to pretend that protesters uh, in favour of, of decriminalising abortion in New South Wales were saying, put the fetus in the bin. Like, which would be a bizarre thing for somebody to be chanting. Mm. Um, they were saying, put the bigots in the bin. He knows that perfectly well, but he was happy to continually lie about it. That he lies about everything, and any media organisation they should they need to treat him like they treat Trump. Anytime they claim something, the ACL claims something, it needs to be they basically need to say no, no, no. If you're going to make that claim, show us the transcripts. We want it. we don't trust your spin on it. We're not taking your word for it. Show mm. us the evidence, because they they have 100% demonstrated that they are not believable and trustworthy. So yeah, and and so if that's who you are and you know that none of your examples will actually stand up to scrutiny, you do what Martin Isles did at the start of that debate, which is a gish gallop, a steady stream of claims that come out so fast, and particularly in that case, it was the opening remarks. It's not like somebody, it's not like, you know, his debate opponent, Fiona Patton, was allowed to respond. Like, he just gets to go, he just runs through them so fast that it seems like there's a massive evidence in support of his case. Mm. But with an, in, a, in such a way that you can't actually address it. And even if you had a quick, pithy response to one of them that you could come straight back with, that's only one of the many. And he'd be like, oh, well, you know, the other ones are fine. Like, it's literally, a gish gallop is, is like a fundamentally dishonest and disingenuous debating technique that um, is only engaged in if you are a shonk. And that is precisely what he was doing. And I, I'm really glad that Mark Kenny was alert to it and called him on it. But I'm like, that was really late in the piece. Mm. That it, Mark Henning Camp didn't stand up for like 40 minutes or so. Like, Martin got that, got away with that just sitting there and being accepted by most of the journalists in the room. And it's really scary how few of them were sufficiently critical and skeptical to query it earlier. Mm. Because, on the face of it, they seemed pretty shaky to me. <laughs> well, so did you see his response when, when Kenny asked him that? He's like, oh, no, you might, might be saying, oh, they can't possibly be that bad, but they are. They definitely are. And you're like, yeah, but we've lived in the world and we know that, that if that were the case, we'd have heard about it. Like, if there was something so completely bonkers, mm. the way you present them, 
we all know because we've lived in the world as adults that there must be another side. What you've presented, like, the only explanation is if we just accept that there's a bunch of bureaucrats that are in, uh, insane and hate Christians and are just out to persecute them for mm. no reason. Which beggars belief that, is, that does not match any of our actual experience. It matches the experience of people who feel that they're persecuted when they go out there and um, evangelize, where they go out there and they try to tell people that they're wrong and evil, like Israel Folau did to the LGBTI people. Like... And then there's some pushback, and then they feel persecuted. So those people feel like, yeah, no, there is a lot of anti-Christian persecution out there, but it's only people pushing back when you go after them, and you are so myopic that you can't see how what you're doing in pushing your opinions, your, in this case, prejudiced opinions, you can't see how that does harm because you don't have empathy Mm. Um, and so then when people push back, you're like, whoa, whoa, I was just saying that what you're doing is a hideous crime against God and you're going to go to hell. But I was only doing it to save your soul. Why, why are you so hostile to me? Exactly. Uh, anyway, Tim Whitehead has something similar stuck in his craw. There are so many good options for what I could talk about this week. And it's so tempting to talk about Christina Keneally and the Labour Party's latest disgrace on refugee policy. But... In the end, there was only one decent choice, and that's because a couple of days ago, Glenn Davies, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, did what Peter Gabriel always recommended. He opened up his mouth and he let those big words come right out. Let's just quote exactly what he said. Talking about supporters of marriage equality, he said this. My own view is that if people wish to change the doctrine of our church, they should start a new church or join a church more aligned to their views, but do not ruin the Anglican church by abandoning the plain teaching of Scripture. Please leave us. We have far too much work to do in evangelizing Australia to be distracted by the constant pressure to change our doctrine in order to satisfy the lusts and pleasures of the world. Okay, there's a lot going on there. A couple of things quickly. Uh, plain teaching of scripture. There is no plain teaching of scripture on marriage equality or on anything to do with LGBTQI issues. And the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, who I'm pretty sure has studied theology, would absolutely know that. Second thing, it's stunningly arrogant to suggest that it's okay to have bad opinions in other churches, but we can't ruin the Anglican church because that's the only good one. I think we all know how ridiculous that proposition is. And also, let's just pause for a moment and really appreciate the breathtaking lack of self-awareness that you would need in order to be that arrogant about anything. But those are just minor issues. The main thing is this absolute nonsense about satisfying the lusts and pleasures of the world. Let me explain this one more time to the Archbishop. People want to marry who they love. Nothing to do with the lusts and pleasures of the world. It's just that they would like to be treated like human beings, just like we straight people are privileged enough to be treated all the time without having to think about it. If you still don't get that in 2019, you should not be in charge of anything, and certainly not a church. Jesus said the greatest commandment, the one that summed up everything else, was that we're meant to love God and love each other. He didn't then turn to the camera and wink and say, unless you don't approve of who they have sex with. 
This intolerance and bigotry is hurting people and it has to stop now. I love it whenever the Anglican Church attacks other people for their orthodoxy. You know, the Anglican Church uh, formed so that Henry VIII could divorce his wife. The, the Anglican Church like, that is built out of people splitting from other churches. I mean, I suppose, to be fair to the Archbishop, maybe that's entirely consistent. Uh, he's just saying, hey, look, why don't you start your own church? We did. It's fun. Um, yeah. yeah, the idea that there's some kind of one true way of interpreting it. And, well, I suppose well, that, that is religion, I suppose. But um, I did like, um, back on Isles, that he was being questioned on why is it that you seem to be de- determined to go after LGBTI people. And he's like, oh, we're not. You know, it could totally go after me too. You know, it's just anybody who has sex outside marriage. It's uh, you know, the Christian sexual ethic. Like the idea that your boss should get to quiz you on your Christian on your sexual ethic and decide whether or not you should be able to be employed or not is deeply disturbing. Mm. And it also is complete nonsense given that uh, the whole push for the religious discrimination bill is, and, and you hear it from them. They, they, they say it when, when they don't realise that it's contradicting their other claims. Um, Erica Betts was saying it this week, uh, that it's there to, um, it was promised uh, as a response to the marriage equality uh, plebiscite. Pro- what, what, who promised it? I didn't. We didn't. Mm. Why, why, and why exactly should they get anything they lost? And, and how is it an equivalent? <laughs> like, one is that LGBT people got equality before the law in marriage, and therefore the religious lobby should get something to take away some of their rights somewhere else. Yeah. What? <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, okay, you, you're a great, great cost. You got slightly ahead towards equality there, but we should get to take it away somewhere else. Like The balance should always be that you're being discriminated against. These are the type of people that complain about participation trophies. Oh, yeah. And yet they, they want a massive one. It's like, we had to participate in this. What do we get? What's our little prize? Everyone gets a prize. <sighs> the problem is the homophobia and you know fundamentalist religion... Uh, is easier to push when people are struggling. Um, And the Anglican Church in particular has a significant body of membership in um, the parts of the world that are struggling the most. And like in Uganda, those areas are often very homophobic um, because that's a natural situation when you're struggling. It's easier to um, lack empathy for other human beings in in things that you don't understand, don't want to understand. Um, And so the disturbing factor is that within the religious world, it does seem like the more regressive forms are the ones that grow faster than the progressive, compassionate ones that I would say, and I would agree with Tim, probably much more reflect um, the character of Jesus Christ as, as portrayed in their Bible. But, you know... I suppose part of the religious text is that they're always vague enough that they can be interpreted in many different ways. Hmm. You would try and interpret them in a nice way, you'd hope. Well, I would, but I'm a nice... Maybe they are the equivalent of... Cam, it's like it's like the Triforce in Legend of Zelda. <laughs> I was reading up on one of, the, one of the earlier games that I'd missed, like the SNES one. But yes, the uh, if, if uh, Ganon holds it, then the world will become evil and corrupt because it amplifies. But if if Link holds it, then the world world will become good and just again. It's just a way of amplifying the uh, deep characteristics of the person who's holding this golden triangle in a video game. Or like the mask in the film The Mask, where if Stanley Ipkiss holds it, he's a zany character. But if like the gangster hold it, holds it, he becomes a super this is gangster. A very good point. That's <laughs> so that's what religious texts are. Apparently, they amplify your inner characteristics. 
Meanwhile, Scummo's running around being the vicious troll that he is. Did you see his explanation this week of uh, trans teens' struggles, is how he managed to dismiss them? Yes. So, could, can I read the quote? You can. It's, it's wonderful, and I'd, I'd like to hear it in somebody else's voice so that it's not an audio recording of me saying it. Uh, the tragedy of youth suicide is all too common in Australia, particularly among younger Australians working through their identity and the pressures of identity politics. You absolute evil scumbag. Uh, yes, it's the people who are supporting trans people for being who they are, or which which Scummo dismisses as identity politics. They're the people who are call, causing them the harm. If only we could just tell them that they're wrong and uh, force them into uh, misery for the rest of their lives, and then they'd be fine. Mm. Well, I mean... It- Basically, the only way to sort of make what he's saying work make sense is that he thinks that it's all it's all just a choice. Oh, he thinks that trans people don't exist. I, I want media to ask him directly. Do you think trans people are real? Mm. Do you think a trans woman is really a trans woman? Do you think they really a trans woman is really a woman? And the problem is fundamentally, he would have to admit, no, he doesn't. He doesn't accept that trans people are real, and nor do the ACL, and nor do any of these people, and nobody ever calls them on it. They're like. Like, as they deliberately misgender people, they are specifically saying, I don't think that you're really a woman. I don't think that you are re- that trans people are really a thing. I think that they are freaks cross-dressing. That's what they mean. Mm. Every time they say that stuff, that is what they are conveying. Now, when we're talking about vilification and hate speech doing harm, that attitude is incredibly harmful. Mm. Any doctor who deals with the issue, other than the pet doctor that the Australian has who hates trans people, but any actual competent doctor who knows what they're talking about and has dealt with trans people, will be able to point out to them how damaging and harmful that is. But they don't care. And the media don't care because they they, they're not specifically holding their feet to the fire on it. It'd be really quite straightforward to like stop Scummo being able to fudge it and just to be keep asking the question until he has to be clear about the transphobic asshole he really is. Yeah, I know he uses the way he uses identity politics. It's it's pretty vicious. Yeah, even when he's like talking about teen suicide, he's taking an opportunity to just have an ideological snipe. Oh yeah, and it's have you noticed it's exactly the same line that go back um, you know twenty thirty years uh, and you can look at the equivalent so twenty thirty years here um, to the equivalent situation which is current in say Russia or Uganda where the homophobic activists are running the same lines against LGBTI people um, in Uganda they're they're like no no we don't tra- gay they're telling people that being gay is a real thing um, these gay activists uh, but it's not really and um, you know these people who are gay they're just they're just being, they're just being misled by gay activists. Um, and if only if it wasn't for these gay activists and their campaigns to let LGBTI people know that they're real and supported and that uh, that they shouldn't be being persecuted. Um, if, if these people would just shut up, then these people would go back into the closet and we wouldn't have to hear about them and they wouldn't have these problems. Because, you know, people don't have problems when they're in the closet. Yeah, problem solved. Like, it's exactly the same. And, you, and if you want to see how regressive it is, look at how they're doing it in Russia and Uganda and see that it's exactly the same line being run against trans people in Australia in 2019. Mm. But anyway, they think they're appealing to the quiet, quiet Australians, the people who are all in the closet, apparently. Did you, did you hear Scummo's vicious little joke to the um, Tasmanian libs? No, let's have a listen to that one. I told the story, it was not long after the election, I was walking down Martin Place in Sydney, 
and there was someone screaming and shouting about some globalist issue. And I said, that doesn't sound like a very quiet Australian to me. <laughs> some globalist issue. That, that is pretty far-right talking point crap there. That is, that is Scummo being like, yeah, they, they were saying something about, you know, some hippie shit. And like, I don't give a shit about that. I just care about the quiet Australians, the people who agree with me. Mm. That, that language, isn't that, doesn't that language have echoes of far-right shit online to you? It does, and in fact, there may be a reason for that, because it was reported in uh, The Guardian last week that uh, Scummo has had a little birdie in his ear talking about QAnon. Wait, QAnon? So, I, I feel like I might have mentioned this once before when I was on the podcast, but for listeners who are not aware, uh, QAnon is a reasonably popular conspiracy theory in the United States, uh, especially amongst Trump supporters. It uh, basically holds that... Uh, Donald Trump was uh, never investigated over any uh, connections to Russia. In fact, uh, when the when Robert Mueller was investigating Trump, he was secretly investigating Hillary Clinton, and that Donald Trump had to uh, pretend he was being investigated so that he could help bring down the globalist elites. And in fact, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, all of the people that uh, Trump supporters hate are already in jail, and it's just a matter of time until they reveal... That that has happened. So there's the, the, it's like clones going on the talk shows and stuff. Yeah, or they are like they have little things on their ankles or something. Why would they be playing along with this conspiracy? Just because you know to hold up, keep up appearances. It uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> doesn't make also, any sense at all. It's ridiculous. It, it all came out of a conspiracy theory that uh, the Democratic Party was running a pedophile ring out of the basement of a pizza restaurant that, so, didn't, that didn't actually have a basement. Yes. Right. So, hang on. So, what's the connection between QAnon and Scummo? So, it turns out that one of Scummo's, like, oldest... Or his wife... One of his wife's uh, oldest friends is the husband of Australia's biggest proponent of QAnon. Okay. And so, this guy's, like, a a close family friend of the Morrisons. And uh, he's apparently been getting in Scott Morrison's ear... Uh, when the Guardian asked him about this, he said, oh, no, I've never talked about QAnon with uh, Scott. But then there are also text messages that he sent to other people on the far right saying, yep, I'm, I'm working on Scott. I'm getting him getting him ready. I'm tell- getting him red-pilled, that sort of thing. Oh, my God. And didn't I see something where um, when there started being some questions being asked by the media, the, the more um, prominent media about this connection... Um, they claimed that uh, they they weren't going to answer any questions and that, that this is a matter that the media should all back off on because he was babysitting the Morrison children or the, or the wife was babysitting the Morrison children and therefore any inquiries on it were endangering the children somehow. Hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of witness. It hasn't, it hasn't really been picked up by the rest of the media. It's uh, just been The Guardian and uh, also Friendly Geordies, who I wouldn't always recommend, but he did a... Good video on this where he noted, uh, similar to the identity politics, similar to the globalist uh, quip, uh, when Scott Morrison did his apology to victims of abuse, uh, he referred to ritual abuse, which is not something that anyone in that sort of field would ever refer to uh, clerical abuse as. Yeah, uh, is that that's connected with the the weird QAnon conspiracy, is it? 
yeah, ritual abuse would be what you would refer to. Well, I mean, it's a thing in the far right sort of Christian space of satanic ritual abuse. They believe uh-huh. that there was huge satanic rings operating throughout the eighties, nineties, <laughs> and today. You know, I feel like Scummo could actually be almost mates with Danny Nalaya from from Catch the Fire, who used to go up to Main Ainsley and try and exorcise. Uh, Canberra for the for the demons, yeah, not for the demons from the demons. I mean, yes. I, I, he's, he's strongly opposed to the demons that are possessing uh, Canberra. Wow, that's disturbing. I do like the idea that you can't ask any questions about it because asking because it's a babysitter for the Morrison children and therefore it's endangering the children. I would have thought that um, having a a crazed conspiracy theorist babysitting the, ch- the prime ministerial children would be more of a threat to the children than you know us finding out about it. But anyway, well, it's I mean this is a group that in the United States the uh, the FBI has identified them as a potential terror threat because there have been a number of incidents where people who believe in this have murdered or they've uh, taken hostages or they've shown up at places with firearms and had sieges and things. I was still fixated on the the excuse of it being uh, that you can't ask about it because of Prime Minister's questions. If maybe they could take that to the next extent. And look, it's definitely in the Prime Ministerial children's interests for, for their father to continue to be Prime Minister for as long as possible. Because, yeah. you know, they get extra protection and he gets more power and money and resources. Like, the longer he's prime minister, probably the uh, the better for the children. So, therefore, um, asking Scummo anything that's uh, potentially harmful to him politically is effectively harming the children and, therefore, is off limits. Exactly. Oh, it just makes sense. Oh, hang on. What were those products and services? I need them again. Do we really need elections? Is that going to be good for the children? Yeah, a federal election requires Scummo to be away from his children for extended period of time throughout the campaign, right? Yeah. But children need their father, you know? So clearly uh, it's harmful to, <laughs> to even have an election campaign because it's harmful to the Prime Ministerial children. No, good, you make a good point, Cam. Mm. Anyway, that is probably a good place to wrap up. Cam, where can the people find the you? They can find my other podcasts, The Hypothetical Institute, which is about conspiracy theories like QAnon and you can also find my podcast with Ben Pobji at Gather Around Me on the podcast places alright and people can find you on the Twitters at Sexenheimer why is I've never got an explanation for that why Why at Sexenheimer uh, it was an online name I picked a long long time ago and I believe that my thinking at the time was, what's the sexiest name I could have? Did it work out for you, uh, No, not at all. Well, thank you to all of our subscribers for coming back. Thank you to the Patreon supporters who are how the podcast keeps going. Uh, you are very, very instrumental in the fact that the podcast can keep going. Um, thank you to uh, everybody who has left a positive review on the iTunes. Thank you for your patience. Uh, in sticking with the podcast when we've had a couple of uh, off weeks uh, you, you may be able to hear in the background some of the reasons why the podcast may have been difficult to record in those weeks maybe <laughs> some hints but otherwise yes thank you for coming back and thank you Robin Gray for the music and Alex Lum for the artwork and we will see you all next week bye <laughs>
Class.